Hello and welcome to the weekly Investor Insights call. Throughout the call, all participants will be in listen-only mode. And just to remind you, this conference call is being recorded. Today, I'm pleased to present Duncan Lamont and Simon Weber. Please go ahead with your meeting. Thank you very much and thank you to everyone joining us live, listening on the playback and via the podcast. Um, I'm very grateful to be joined today by Simon Weber. Given all of the volatility and uh, troubles of equity markets, we're particularly interested to hear his take on things. But starting with what's been going on in the past week or so, everyone's probably getting a bit bored with Brexit updates, but this time there's something concrete to report. EU leaders have agreed to the withdrawal package proposed by, proposed by Theresa May, and it will go to a UK parliamentary vote on the 11th of December. This has been presented as a bit of an ultimatum for UK politicians either accept it or head towards a hard Brexit. But given the divisiveness and political posturing that's been going on, we shouldn't take anything for granted. In Europe, there's been a few poor economic releases. German GDP was confirmed as declining by 0.2% in the third quarter. Manufacturing, and particularly the auto sector, standing out for the wrong reasons. However, in a note from Azad last week, he set out his reasons for believing this to be a temporary hiccup rather than something more concerning mainly due to the phasing of auto sales in response to changes in emission standards. So turning to asset markets, equities have been where all the action has been, and we'll come to that in a moment. For core fixed income, it's been a pretty dull week. Ten-year Treasury fell a couple of basis points to 3.06, been relatively range-bound between that level and around 3.20 this quarter. Core European yields fell a bit more, but only four to five basis points. And actually, Italian yields fell relative to German boots. If we look at risk assets more generally, commodities had some more troubles. Brent crude oil prices fell to a 2018 low of $59 a barrel, and it's fallen precipitously by around 30% this quarter alone. If we look at aluminium, zinc, nickel, all fallen by between 25 to 30% from their air peaks this year. Now, if we turn to the focus of today's call on equities, it was another bruising week for equities, and tech stocks in particular. U.S. equities shed 3.7%, but the more tech-focused Nasdaq was off 4.3%. Other major markets also fell, but to a lesser extent. But if we think actually relative to their 2018 highs, U.S. and U.K. markets are both offering 10%, Europe 12 and Japan 13%. Emerging markets were still off 16.5% in local terms, and 22% in dollars. It's been pretty brittle, really. And now, even actually after these recent falls on a year-to-date basis, the US market has only just got its head above water with everyone else deeply underwater. The tech sector has looked um, even worse. Facebook off almost 40% from its peak. Twitter off around a third. And Chinese tech stocks have also had a tough time. Tencent's almost down almost 40% from its earlier high. So, Simon, I guess the question on everyone's lips, given all of this turmoil, is whether this is just noise or whether we are actually seeing something more of a fundamental shift going on. Um, well, we certainly don't think it's all noise. Um, and we we feel we are in a different equity market environment um, that's different from the periodic sell-offs we've seen over the years of a eight-year-long bull market. Um, so we're certainly taking it seriously. I think one important point of context is international equities outside the US have been weak 
all year and it was mm. almost like the US equity market was in its own little bubble and they've finally woken up to the the more troubling realities. So what are they? Those realities are probably that the US is later in its economic cycle than, um, than the rest of the world, but coming towards the end. Probably most concerning for markets is this uncertainty around the US-China relationship. So there's the trade aspect of it and the very real uncertainty of whether we'll have 25% tariffs on all US imports uh, from China next year or a prospect of a deal. They're very different scenarios for companies. Um, but also whether or not this is a more strategic uh, geopolitical battle um, and trade is just one aspect of it where um, intellectual property and the, the long-term growth of China is, is something that, that the US has got more concerned about and the US being a more unilateral or self-interested body on the world stage. So, you know, there's a range of issues there, but we certainly think they are at the heart of what's troubling markets and, and they're not to be easily dismissed. I guess particularly suppose around the geopolitical angle, this is, there's been concerns for a while that there's been a lot of geopolitical risk, but it hasn't really been appreciated by markets. And there's been somewhat of a sanguine view that this was a trade dispute which they were going to get over, except there appears to be more of a, a longer term risk that this is a, a, a battle, if you want to call it that, that will actually be ongoing for, for, for years to come. I think that's right. And it's not just um, fervent Donald Trump supporters who recognize that China has taken advantage of the US. You know, China has had a number of um, areas of competitiveness, competitive advantage, whether that's low environmental standards or um, forcing technology transfer that the US wants to see addressed and China is not easily going to give up on those um, on, on those issues and, and its desire to become um, a clear leader in, in next generation of technologies. And these are really at the heart of whether or not a deal can be reached. It's not, I think, just about tariffs on where where where, where low-value goods are manufactured. That's not the big issue here. Okay. And, and given all of the, the disruption that we've seen, has this led to any adjustments in positioning for any of the, the existing stocks within your portfolios? And has it also opened up some opportunities for areas that have been on your, your watch list? Yeah, we have done a, a few things. Um, we've certainly been... Firstly, cautious around anything that just is too cyclically exposed and doesn't have, you know, pricing power, doesn't have a clear competitive advantage, and that just speaks to a desire we have across our portfolios to have a high-quality focus. We want companies with strong balance sheets, and we want companies that really have an ability to withstand different economic environments. That said. We have all year felt that the right strategy was going to be is going, this was going to be a less trend-following market, and we wanted to be looking at the opportunities created by markets that have uh, where markets have sold down particular regions or sectors. We saw that over the summer with a number of emerging markets. More recently, we have seen it with a number of technology industries and companies, uh, and we have begin we have begun to to step into a few of those opportunities. But we think there's a high quality business. The market has got concerned whether it's the trade uh, issue or whether it's just a, a downturn in the inventory cycle. But to, to, we feel the risk reward has got more attractive, so we're stepping into some of those situations. I guess when we spoke before, that's one of, one of the challenges is with some of the companies have been 
speeding up because of the trade disputes. It's difficult to know how that will actually play out. So actually being able to know how much conviction to play in those stocks is quite difficult when you, there is so much uncertainty regarding the outlook. Yeah, it is very difficult to judge. Um, but what we can do is try and create probabilities and weigh up the, the risks around a particular company and, and the upside that's being created um, by, the, by the share price declines. We think that if we focus on companies that really do have a strong market position, so I'll give you two examples within um, the more semiconductor industry that has been weak recently, companies like TSMC, they essentially make the devices, they make the, the chips that go into everyone's smartphone, you know, everyone's computer, and they are not, there is no viable alternative other than Samsung and TSMC to make those leading edge chips. So they, they, have, they have quite a strong competitive vote there. And I guess, I think when we spoke about this before as well, we were saying, what is it that actually, it seems odd that you can have a company that has such a strong market position and it doesn't get other competitors coming in, but what is it that makes these guys special in that sense? Well, I think in the case of TSMC, they just have a fantastic technological understanding of manufacturing at scale semiconductor devices um, and that gives them a cost of production that no one else can match. One of the other companies that we've been looking at and I think is very interesting is a company called ASML, it's a European company, and they actually make the lithography equipment that you use to make chips. Essentially, they're a monopoly supplier of these leading edge lithography equipment. You can't build a semiconductor plant uh, without one of their devices. And so that is really going to be immune from wherever uh, tariffs force capacity to be built, you will still need ASML equipment. And we think that once you get through the vagaries of a, of a, a tariff-induced inventory cycle, they will still be selling a lot of machines. So companies where you don't have to worry too much about the changing competitive landscape because of trade uh, trade deals, but have been sold off, you know, that's re really where we think there's some good opportunities. Okay, I guess um, thinking about tech in particular, on a recent call, Alex Tedder reiterated the view that tech was still a good place to invest has obviously been a, um, one of your stronger views, given the strong structural story. But I guess there have been quite a lot of um, turmoil in that particular sector of the market. Has that led to any reassessments on your side? And, and what would actually cause a more fundamental shift in your view regarding the sector? As, as society and you know, competitors have realized the, the true power of these technology companies that we're talking about. Software businesses, internet, social media platforms, e-commerce platforms, you know, they have just fantastic growth potential and market position. They, they have become, they're more critics, either com commercially competitive or for societal regulatory reasons. And so that is the key, the key issue we're watching is to what extent regulation and pressure from society for these companies on these companies that forces them to add more cost or to restrict their um, their investments, that would be a concern, so it's something we're monitoring, um, as would needless or um, needless investments. And by that, I mean these companies are still investing a lot in growth initiatives and loss-making ventures. And we, we're possibly entering a phase of the cycle where they need to be a bit more cautious. Otherwise, that will affect their overall profitability. So those are the two main risks, but I would say we remain of the view that 
Most of these companies are very well positioned. We're overweight technology across our portfolios and are probably more looking for ad rather than, than, than anything else. Okay, so the recent, the recent downturn would represent a buying opportunity for, for some of these stocks then? Yep. Okay. Um, I guess thinking, changing tax slightly, if we think about um, the moves we've seen in interest rates over the course of the last year, um, it's notable rises in short and longer term rates in, in the US in particular. And these can affect equities in a number of ways. It could be the discount rate using the evaluation model, so higher interest rates could be lower valuation. The cost of borrowing by some of these companies themselves in terms of their, their debt. And there's, I guess, from an investor perspective, there's a relative value trade where do equities adequately compensate me for the risk relative to cash or, or, or government bonds? I suppose from a stock picker's perspective, there's nothing much you can do about the cash equity relative value trade. But how worried are you about the impact of higher interest rates, either through discount rates or, or debt vulnerabilities? Um, yeah, somewhat worried. Um, and it's certainly something that we're trying to take advantage of in our stock picking and our portfolio construction. So, you know, certainly we feel that the higher discount rate that is coming through, where you have a company that is not really going to have the benefit on their sales or their revenue growth line from higher nominal GDP growth, but they will be subjected to the higher discount rates we need to apply with high rates, then that a classic long duration stock, they can be derated and they have been derated over the last few months. What, what kind of stocks or sectors would, would, would that cover? Um, consumer staples are a classic example of that. They're not particularly high growth. They're staple uh, businesses, but the, the long-term value really comes under pressure when you raise the discount rate. And then there's another category that we're concerned about, which is leverage. Either companies that have used a lot of debt, cheap debt over the last seven, eight years to buy, uh, make acquisitions, and the that equation is changing because the cost of financing those acquisitions is going up. And where you have a sector that has quite a lot of debt, they don't have too much pricing power, and telecoms is a good example of that. They actually, because they have a lot of income shareholders, they pay out a high percentage of their earnings, and they have quite a lot of debt, so they're not deleveraging very fast. Now, that sector does look quite vulnerable to us. I guess well, from an actual fundamental point of view, the most companies have refinanced their debt, pushed out the maturity spectrum, and again, the near-term refinancing risk isn't especially there, but I think from what I'm hearing from you is that markets will anticipate that, and then you would start to see some effect in prices well before the, the actual underlying default risk came through. Yeah, we think, I mean, I see it all the time that analysts in their modelling, they look out maybe one or two years, underest can underestimate this issue because the company's debt may be termed out and they have no refinancings for, for two years. But equities are a discounting mechanism and we need to think about the full lifetime. And if we're in an era of higher rates and higher credit spreads, then when that debt comes to be refinanced, it will have a higher cost and that lowers the, uh, the value to equity holders. So we think the market will begin to price in those issues where companies will have to refinance their debt in three, four, five years' time. Okay, so I guess those investors who are being a bit too short-term in the way that they're looking at things will perhaps miss out on the fact that the market's going to reprice well before the underlying risks actually materialise. Yeah. Okay. Um, turning a bit to Europe now, I guess particularly we can maybe start off with, with the UK because it's, it's, it's an interesting case. There was a headline in the FT, I think yesterday, in FTFM saying 
a recent conference respondent said the UK was uninvestable at the moment, given the uncertainties regarding the outlook. What would your response be to that? I think that's just rubbish, frankly. Um, <laughs> I mean, all kinds of stocks and markets have a number of unknown risks. I mean, you could say the same thing about anything exposed to trade. You know, if you don't know the outcome of the U.S.-China trade deal, so we, as, as an investor, you have to deal with unknowns and discount them and make your your estimates. Uh, I think it's fair to say across our team, but also I know from some of the, our European uh, equity colleagues, they have been finding more UK-based stocks that are attractive, both a number of domestic businesses and global businesses that are UK-listed, but because of all these outflows and aversion to UK equities, the valuation looks quite attractive. Uh, yeah, whatever a uh, the Brexit outcome, um, industrial consumer businesses that have an international profile will be fine. And we have actually been finding some really good businesses that are domestically focused in the UK that look attractive to us. And a number of, that, I think that's kind of borne out by the fact that you are seeing foreign corporate money buy good quality UK businesses. It shows that there's good value on offer. And just because we're in a period where foreign investors don't really want to favor the UK, it doesn't make it unacceptable. Okay, that's interesting. So I guess although the um, equity investors may have been turning away from the, the UK, actually corporates are actually seen as quite a good fishing ground for M&A transactions given the depressed valuation. Yeah, I mean, we've had just this year Takeda, big Japanese pharma company buying Shire, huge deal. Uh, it's yet to complete, but it's close to completion. We've had Coca-Cola step in to buy uh, the Costa Coffee franchise from Whitbread, um, and there are a number of other other, other foreign corporates that have been looking at UK businesses. Um, Smith has, has almost um, sold one of their divisions this year. That uh, was you know, didn't quite complete, but there was a lot of US interest in that. Okay, so I guess markets are, in a way, price risk, and once that risk is priced in, then that doesn't mean it's a good or bad investment. You just then assess it based on whether the valuation makes sense against that backdrop, rather than just um, saying no because there's a perceived risk. Yeah, and we would agree with Keith and Azad's um, conclusion that there's 10 to 15% downside in the pound in a hard Brexit and probably 10 to 15% upside in a in a very soft Brexit. And you just have to factor that in as a potential outcome. All right, well, thank you very much, Simon. We're coming towards the end of today's call, but um, really appreciate your time. Um, we've covered a number of different things here, um, just running through some of them. I guess heightened political geopolitical tensions mean this could be more than just a hiccup with longer-term ramifications. Um, you've not been cutting technology exposure and actually have been looking to add some high-quality companies with good fundamentals and attractive valuations. Um, higher interest rates are likely to become an issue for particular stocks and sectors, so either those that are indebted with higher payout ratios, like telcos, or those kind of longer-duration, um, low-steady-growth companies that were popular bond proxies. And finally, um, rather than the FT headline of saying that the UK is uninvestable, actually you're quite the opposite of being adding to the UK's position um, for both global and domestically focused businesses. Okay, on that note, thank you very much and thank you for everybody for joining us on today's call. This now concludes our conference call. Thank you all for attending. You may now disconnect your lines.